This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. When I say I'm struck listening to the previous talks, but this is something I have a general interest in, and that is that I think that uh, many <clears throat> academics, whether they're lawyers or social scientists who write about law, don't uh, understand judges, including Supreme Court justices. Or, especially if they're law professors, they do understand, but they think it would be impolitic to speak frankly about judges. Um, and this, uh, this it's very important, however, that you be realistic about judges because otherwise you won't know how to communicate with them and make your empirical findings um, usable by judges. So the, the way in which the academic, whether lawyer or social scientist, talks about judges, whether they believe it or not, is that they, they think of judges as being like academics. They're, they're looking for uh, correct answers to questions that arise in cases. They differ only in that they're not as smart as academics. <laughs> we know they're not as smart because merit plays such a, a, small, a smaller role in judicial selection than in academic selection. Um, <clears throat> there are hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of uh, American lawyers who would be abler Supreme Court justices than the current nine justices. Uh, ability is only one consideration in appointing a judge, and it's by no means the most important one, especially in the Supreme Court, um, where the appointment of a appointment of a Supreme Court justice is a is a big thing for the president. And uh, what, what the president gets from that is not getting the best person for the job, but getting someone who has maybe the right race, sex, what have you, um, right political views. Um, now, of particular reference to, to this conference, not only is the fact that the Supreme Court is not really outstanding, but uh, no, none of the justices has any uh, empirical, uh, technical background. They all have, they're just humanities majors. So, <clears throat> but uh, there's something more fundamental in the dis difference between academics and judges. Uh, the academics tackle questions that they think they can answer. They pick their topics. And, you know, with a view toward the feasibility of making progress on a, on a particular topic. But the judges uh, make decisions in cases that come, come at them randomly. Um, so the judge's duty is to decide. Even if the judge has no idea what a correct, sensible decision would be in a case, or a decision congenial to the judge's views. 
have to, the duty to decide is fundamental. And that makes a tremendous difference to how one thinks about problems and what one brings to the problems. Um, there's a large area in federal law that I, I call the open area where there are really no guideposts. And uh, in these areas, the judge judges fall back on their priors, often unconscious. But they include you know, politics, ideology, ambition, for example, the judges who are angling uh, for promotion, <clears throat> district judges to become court of appeals judges. Some court of appeals judges really think they have a chance at the Supreme Court and they try to uh, decide cases accordingly. Some are looking for posthumous fame. And, of course, people's race, gender, temperament, background of both personal and career and personality. Temperament, very important. Some, some judges have the, you know, there's a literature on the authoritarian personality, psychological literature. Some judges uh, are very <coughs> authoritarian. They get very indignant at uh, criminals and sentence them to very long terms because, because they just don't understand, you know, what might make a person a criminal. Um, now, all this has been known for an awfully long time. So Holmes said 133 years ago, said the life of the law has not been logic, it has been experienced, the felt necessities of the time, the prevalent moral and political theories, intuitions of public policy, avowed or unconscious, even the prejudices which judges share with their fellow men have had a good deal more to do than the syllogism in determining the rules by which men should be governed. And that's as true today as it was in 1881, and it's true if we substitute regression analysis for uh, syllogism. So judges are influenced to a, to a degree by facts, but of course only facts they understand. And um, they don't know how to evaluate statistical uh, or otherwise systematic empirical work. And, or to be more precise, more, more relevant, they don't, they, we I should say, don't know how to extract fact or truth from uh, social scientific uh, research. Um, as a result, they do mention it in opinions, but they're not really using it or relying on it. So as you probably know, <laughs> the judges tend to be coy about this, almost all judicial opinions uh, nowadays are written by law clerks. And that's true on the Supreme Court. All the justices have their law clerks write the first draft of the opinion. And um, <clears throat> how much editing there is by judges or justices varies with the judge or justice. Often there's very little. Some of <laughs> one clerk edit the other law clerk's draft. Some of them require that the law clerks agree on the opinion and present it to the justice, you know, so he, he or she can be confident that it must be right. 
So now the law clerk, for the, for the law clerk, writing an opinion means writing a brief in support of the judge's vote. So the law clerks will be happy to cite empirical uh, literature if it supports the judge's vote. doesn't mean they believe it or have any opinion about it, but, you know, if it looks reputable, we'll go in. The materials on the other side will not, however, the contrary findings that will be left to the opponents <laughs> to find if they can. Um, so I think it's, you know, you have to be very careful to um, uh, to, to try to to try to determine whether the the use of empirical work in uh, judicial opinions is more than rhetorical. Um, maybe when you write about judicial opinions, instead of saying the judge relied on or used or something uh, some study, you should just say the ju the judge's opinion cited a study. Um, now, I want to take issue with um, something Jeff said today about um, the uh, Supreme Court having made a mistake in Brown versus Board of Education in citing Kenneth Clark's Dahl study, which showed that black uh, children prefer white to black dolls. Well, I don't think it was a mistake because... The problem for the Supreme Court and Brown versus Board of Education was that they wanted, of course, to invalidate public school segregation for quite obvious reasons. But they wanted to do it without insulting the white Southerners. I'm sure they were told by Justice Black, you mustn't, you know, you mustn't say anything critical of Southerners because otherwise you're going to have a lot of unrest and defiance in the South which, of course, occurred. But the, the idea was not to say anything about the motives for segregated schools, but just to point out, using the Dahl study, that, you know, it had just been discovered, wasn't the fault of the Southerners, they didn't know Kenneth Clark, that um, empirical evidence had shown that segregation had bad consequences for the black uh, children. So... Whether the justices or their law clerks knew that the study was flawed or cared, probably didn't care. You know, they, this, they, they had very, very different motives. And I'm sure often the, uh, the empirical evidence recited in an opinion has, has nothing to do with the decision. I think another example of that, and I think there are many, but... You know, Roper versus Simmons is a Supreme Court case that held that you can't execute uh, minors. And I'm sure the reason that they just thought it was, you know, kind of doesn't look nice to be executing children. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, they, I think this Kennedy opinion has reams of dubious material about uh, psychological maturation of children. Actually, it's pretty clear from the material, some of which they cite, some of which they don't cite, that you can't draw, you can't just say age 18, the one's under it or immature, the one's over it. I mean, it's not like that at all. 
But um, but again, you know, it goes by this Yiddish joke that I that I enjoy and think very uh, applicable to the judiciary. That uh, you know, some guy in some shtetl community in 19th century Russia, and uh, he's walking along and he sees that the the moil, you know, does the ritual circumcisions, has a new um, has a new I don't know, shop or place of business. I don't know what you call it. And it's you know it's new, it's fancy. It's actually got a got a, a show window. <clears throat> and he notices that in the show window there are a bunch of watches being uh, exhibited. So he's puzzled by this. So he goes in and he says, he says to Moyle. Uh, I don't understand. I mean, you're in a nice new shop and your show window and everything, but I don't understand why you're exhibiting watches when you are a moil. And so the moil says, "What do you want me to put in the show window?" <laughs> so, so that I think is that's the judicial problem. The judges are shy <laughs> about uh, saying why they're doing things, and they'll be happy to hide behind uh, empirical evidence without. You know, any real concern with whether it's truthful or... Now, I think it's important to distinguish among types of empirical evidence and how they should be uh, presented to judges, what can be done for the judges. Um, You know, there are a lot of continuing uh, educational programs for judges, and... um, it's a, it's very difficult to do though because the problem is again you know it's the unpredictability of the judicial workload judicial caseload <clears throat> if a judge takes a two week course in you know regression analysis say it may be a year before he sees a case in which someone wants him to give some attention to regression analysis and then he's forgotten it all so it's it's very very hard but um, one thing that that uh, that came up this morning was the was the neutral uh, experts. So, um, I mean, published academic or otherwise, you know, professional products by competent people—they're certainly um, proper to consider. But um, invariably, in, com- in complex cases, there are party-appointed expert uh, witnesses. <coughs> They're sometimes called by, law- by lawyers <coughs> paid liars. And um, <coughs> they will uh, uh, battle each other, testifying before the judge or jury. And... Um, <coughs> Uh, it was remarked this morning that often, if it is if it's a jury, it could be true with a judge. The tendency often is to simply let, you know, consider them to cancel each other out and find some other ground for the decision. <clears throat> but um, uh, even though judges clearly have the authority, federal judges clearly have the authority to appoint a their own expert. Um, this is done extremely rarely because of the um, um, 
commitment that most judges feel to, to the adversary system. The notion somehow truth is produced by a couple of self-interested lawyers with, with very low uh, standards of candor and uh, highly paid experts. And this, somehow this generates truth before an audience of ignoramuses, the, the jury and the, and the judge. Um, so you really need to have a, a neutral. So I do patent cases as a volunteer in the district court. And, um, uh, you know, I ask the parties to have their experts get together and nominate some two or three neutrals, and then I interview them and appoint one. And, you know, you get a, an academic who's very, very good at explaining things because he's had, you know, elementary students. And someone like that can be extremely valuable. And I can tell a jury that, look, you know, first expert you're going to hear from is the, uh, the expert that I appointed, and um, he was nominated by the party's expert, so he's a, they accept that he's a neutral, and he's highly qualified, and uh, his fee <laughs> is being split between the the uh, litigants, and I've told them they can't question his fee. So you want to listen very carefully for to him. Then you'll hear the party actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I say, uh, very, very, very few judges uh, do anything like this. Uh, another pro another source of expert evidence that's quite um, uh, unreliable are the Amicus Curiae briefs. And um, there's been criticism for the Supreme Court having, you know, gullibly accepted um, empirical as assertions in Amicus Curiae briefs. Um, now, with the neutral neutral expert, there's an issue both of um, um, reliability. Uh, accuracy, uh, neutrality, but there's also a big, uh, issue, big issue of communication. And um, what's good about professors who teach elementary classes is that they know how to. I uh, <coughs> I interviewed one expert. I don't think it was. I don't know. I think it was a party expert, and I'm not sure why I was interviewing him, but I was. <coughs> and I think it was about. I don't know, DNA or something complicated. And I asked him whether he had any experience, you know, whether he thought he could explain his views to uh, a lay audience. Jurors, they wouldn't have any technical background in all likelihood, maybe one would. And he said, oh, yes, because I teach a little course at, um, at uh, Disneyland. And I explained this to the kids and the tourists. So I said, yeah, you're perfect, right? <laughs> just so, um, so, the, so the judges really have to be, um, if they're dealing with a jury, they have to, they, they, they have to uh, make sure that any 
of the any findings, statistical, what have you, are made very, very clear. You know, with the kind of uh, visual aids which you've seen, you know, a, a simple graph, a simple table, will will do a lot, and that should be uh, doable. But again, the judges have to be alert to the limitations of the of their their audience. Um, the problem is that the the empirical work, however uh, convincing it is, it, it's often going to come into collision with the judge's uh, political or other feelings about a case. It's very easy for judges to brush aside uh, persuasive evidence by just saying, well, that's not how I feel about it, you know. So, <laughs> uh, so I don't quite know how that can can be overcome. Um, there are some areas where I think uh, science and um, social science, natural science, can have an influence. There are areas in which the judges. Are, don't really have strong priors. So patent law is an, an example of that. Uh, there used to be fierce controversy on the Supreme Court among the justices like Justice Douglas who hated the patent system and couldn't really distinguish between good monopoly and bad monopoly and the more conservative justices. But now I think um, there isn't that kind of division on the Supreme Court. And... Um, they're, they, I think, are willing to uh, listen within the degree of their um, understanding. Now, my guess is that the law clerks have a big effect because often, you know, these Supreme Court judges have four law, law clerks. Often, if they're smart, they'll hire at least one or two who have good technical backgrounds, and often they will have uh, at least one, and that'll that'll make a big difference. So, um, what uh, can can be done in legal education to uh, imp improve communication between social scientists and uh, the judges? As I say, I don't think much too much can be done with the judges themselves, but uh, a lot can be done with students. Um, I think there's too much law taught in in law schools. I think uh, <clears throat> I think academic lawyers, in fact, lawyers generally exaggerate the importance of legal doctrine, um, precedent, and so on. I think uh, in a very large number of cases, the judges are just uh, they're trying to <clears throat> reach a result which is reasonable. According to their lights, and um, they're not critically in, uh, interested in doctrine and precedent. You know, what's a reasonable result? And um, they're very interested in the facts because that's going to determine what is a reasonable result. And um, if the social scientists, natural scientists, are to communicate facts in a way intelligible to judges, 
they have to understand the limitations of judicial think of judicial uh, intelligence and understanding, <clears throat> and how it is that uh, results of academic studies can be rendered in basically in words of one syllable for the judge. And I I don't know whether law schools. Uh, are, think of this as something which is one of their responsibilities. Uh, make the students who have no technical background take ne- technical courses while they're in law school. They don't have to take three years just of law courses. There's plenty of time for other stuff. So a traditional problem, remember when accounting used to be a... a uh, compulsory course when I was a law student. Um, Well, if it's compulsory, well, if it's compulsory, then you're going to get some people in the course who don't need it. The problem is if it's an elective course, the students who need the, the, say, accounting the most will not take it because they feel they will be outclassed by the ones who know accounting who will take the course because it'll be a gut for them. So I think uh, I think law schools should require people who do not have a technical background to devote, you know, a significant chunk, not 50%, but a chunk of their <clears throat> time in law school to taking courses, not necessarily in the law school, in uh, areas that are, you know, very important. Accounting happens to be a very important area, finance. Um, uh, biological evidence, you know, like DNA, medical, uh, common medical problems that arise in law, um, statistics, certainly, um, psychology, economics. They're going to get a lot of economic analysis in their regular law courses. Um, and I think the the the, uh, the the law students have to be taught uh, how to communicate um, with judges, how to deal with facts. I noticed that um, uh, moot courts. I don't know if it's true here. They tend to have very artificial uh, fact records on which the oral arguments are based, the briefs and oral arguments. That's a mistake because the most important thing for the for the uh, advocate is to use the facts in a persuasive way. It has to understand them and look outside uh, the record. And I and I think the faculty should make sure that the moot court does that and isn't just uh, abstract doctrinal uh, stuff. Um, I think those are. I think the, the. I think I had one. I think I had one more uh, point I wanted to make, but I forget it. So forgot it. So I'll stop. Yes. Given um, this sort of view of judges, and one of the frequent proposals is to have more specialized courts, um, 
where you, you select people. I mean, Federal Circuit would be the you know, classic example when you're talking about patents, um, but what do you think about that, and which areas of law do you think it's... Well, for some reason, specialized courts do not work in the federal system. So I don't know anything about, you know, juvenile courts and divorce courts and so on in the states. The federal circuit is the worst, the worst court in the United States. Um, the Social Security Administration is, with its administrative law judges, that's a specialized court, it's terrible. The immigration court is unspeakable. So somehow, we have a very bad history with specialized federal courts. Um, and you can see also why, why it's not, it's not going to work well. The specialists, they will develop, they will develop a special uh, vocabulary, which will be unintelligible to anybody else. And it'll make review by the Supreme Court, for example, if you're going to have at least a, a generalist court at the top, very difficult, be, because they just, you know, they sink into their into their jargon. The other point I was going to make, it has to do with something I get a lot of criticism for, which I ignore completely, <laughs> and that is what's being, uh, it was given a name, um, Independent, I've never heard this before, independent judicial research, which means the judge is doing their own factual uh, research, um, you know, usually on the web. And um, I do it because if the, if the lawyers aren't going to give me the facts that I th think I need to decide a case intelligently, I will try to find them myself. I try to use reputable sources. <laughs> Probably doesn't always work. But for, but for example, um, all of the major uh, hospital uh, chains or hospital, you know, great medical institutions like the Cleveland Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, Sloan Kettering, the Centers for Disease Control and Protection, which used to be a well-regarded organization, <laughs> um, they have they have great websites, and um, and you know they're they're uh, they're very reputable, but you know there are all sorts of uh, resources on the web, so so people say, well, you know, uh, you're not subjecting it to. The, uh, the adversary process, you're putting, you're, you're finding facts, you're putting appellate fact. One of my colleagues criticized me in a case for appellate fact finding. It's apparently forbidden. But uh, the, the criticisms rests on the fiction that the adversary process is a effective way of generating truth, which obviously isn't true. Because when you look at when you look at the very limited capacities of the jurors and the judges and the incentives of the lawyers um, and of the witnesses, you forget about expert witnesses. Do, do ordinary witnesses tell the truth? Not if they're a party. You know, the, the olden days, right, parties couldn't testify because they were biased. They're still biased. They're now allowed to testify. And 
the the psychologists have ridiculed uh, many of the assumptions on which our adversary process r- rests. Eyewitness testimony, which used to be regarded as the gold standard of testimony, has been shown to be extraordinarily uh, inaccurate. And, you know, some of the rules of evidence about excited utterance, you know, and they have shown to be not this the notion that if you say something when you're excited or fearful it's going to be the truth that there are no spontaneous lies you know that's that is a federal rule of procedure and it isn't it is it is false so i think independent judicial research is important the hope is that it would uh make the lawyers more resourceful about using the web as a a source of, of facts rather than, you know, depositions and so on. So, um, and of course, it's, it's, it's on the web that one, that the judge, the law clerk will find uh, a lot of academic research and um, the problem will be a, a translation problem. Yes. Uh, so law schools get a lot of feedback from law firms about what we should be training our students to do. Presumably the lawyers in these firms have some experience you know, with what works for them. You don't hear this. Right? They're, they say, oh, we want more practical training in the law. Or, 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 or. I, I don't think I've ever heard a, a lawyer from a, you know, alum, some alumni group come in and say, you know, you need to be teaching your students uh, how to talk about statistics to judges. Why is that? Um, the, the, the quality of the legal advocacy in our court, my court, um, is extremely low. And even from good firms, and I think the problem is that they goes back to the first thing I said. They don't, they don't understand judges. They don't understand the judicial mentality. They don't, they don't tell us the most obvious things that a normal person would think about in a particular a, a type of case. Um, like the age, <laughs> the age of the victim. I mean, suppose you have a a uh, a prisoner, and he, you know he's complaining about prison conditions, savage prison conditions. Well, you might think it made it would make a difference if he was twenty one, if he was seventy, or something. But they just they leave. They're always leaving out um, uh, these these facts. That is, if the judge tries to. Um, <coughs> Uh, make a coherent narrative of what and why did this happen and why then and so on, often the facts that you need for that have simply been left out. They're excessively obsessed with... Um, I mean, you look at the, the the first thing in the in a brief is the list of all the cases they've cited. Pages and pages of citations. Almost all of it completely useless. So they're fussing over trying to extract um, uh, 
phrases and made up holdings from cases and not telling us uh, what the facts are. Or they give severely truncated or one-sided. And then you read the two briefs. You have to go back to the record. Um, we're often, you know, it's, there's n- nowhere in the record. So sometimes, you know, you, 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 um, I had a case, for example, we have, we have this wonderful uh, Telephone Consumer Protection Act, which I hope you're all familiar with. You may make money from it someday. But um, if you receive an unsolicited fax advertisement, um, you are entitled to seek statutory damages of, I don't know, about a, a thousand, may go up to three thousand. Now, you wouldn't bother probably, but you could become part of a class action. So we had a typical Telephone Consumer Protection Act class action in which uh, what's called a fax buster, a company that specializes in distributing fax advertisements, goes to some uh, sucker (laughs) company, which has never heard of the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, and says, what you need is like 100,000 faxes. That's a great way of advertising. It's very cheap. So the company says, fine. So the next thing you know, it's hit by this right $100 million suit because there are 100,000 recipients, presumably none of whom had solicited the advertisement, $100 million. So you go, so you go to the defendant and says, um, well, actually, you know, you're liable to us for $100 million, but um, we, we know you don't, uh, you don't um, have $100 million, so if you would give us $5,000, we'll recommend to the judge that he accept this settlement. So in one case I had this, I, there was nothing about the defendant. So I, I looked up the defendant company in uh, Dun and Bradstreet, and it turned out this company, which I don't know, it sells furniture or something somewhere in California, this company has two employees. So the notion of its being the defendant in the $100 million case was wonderfully ludicrous. So you'd think the defendant's brief would say, this is a very little company. We, we're, you know, we're pathetic. We have two employees. We can't, even the settlement they want, we can't, we can't do it. We didn't know anything about it. We'd never heard of the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. An appeal to our mercy would probably be successful. So, so I don't understand how the lawyers could have uh, left, left that out of, of their case. But we constantly encountering this. Or else it's sort of mindless complexity. We had a case under the uh, uh, Communications Communications Act of 1993 or so. And I read the briefs and law clerks read the briefs. It was gibberish. It was all technical stuff about Communications and all about, and also about the Communications Act, which is very complicated. So, in the argument, I said to one of the lawyers, I said, Look, I read your brief 
the briefs, and my law clerks read the briefs, and we don't have the faintest idea about what this case is about. So he was, te- so could you explain in words of one syllable, you know, what it's about? So this lawyer, a little taken aback, judges don't usually talk that way, but he, sa- but he did, and he explained it very simply. And it was actually quite a straightforward case. It turns out, of course, that, you know, he and the other lawyers, they... They're, they appear mainly before the Federal Communications Commission, and they share this technical language with the commissioners. But not to realize that walking into a, into a court which hears maybe one Telecommunications Act a case, case every five years, you can't talk that way. And that this was a good lawyer. So, so the... Um, they're just not thinking about the limitations of the generalist judiciary, and I don't. I don't understand why. It seems so obvious, but that's why I say there's a. Now maybe they feel they're worried that if they talk to us in words of one syllable, um, we'll be offended. We'll feel we're being patronized. <laughs> Our omniscience is being questioned. But, uh, you know, after the, the oral argument, we have our post-argument conference. The judges always agree on, you know, which lawyers did a good job. I've never heard a judge say, oh, they were talking down to us or they were, you know, they were tr- trying to explain stuff that we know better than they do. No, never. We're, we're happy to be spoon-fed by the, <laughs> by the, by the lawyers. Yes. What do you think of the reference uh, from your court, not in your decision, uh, to a Harvard Law Review article as something <laughs> that ought to be paid attention to because not peer-reviewed? Yes, that was very funny. Uh, Frank, yes, right. Um, yes, I. what did I say about that? Well, I, I mentioned it in my dissent, and I said, so much for law reviews. So... Uh, Oh yeah, I didn't just cite the Harvard Law Review. No, yeah, you, yeah. You responded to Frank's. Yeah, but um, uh, no, you can't. You can't uh, insist on um, peer uh, review of. Of, of everything one cites, obviously. There are reputable factual sources that aren't uh, uh, subject to uh, peer review. But on the other hand, isn't that a reasonable... So, the, you know, the, the amicus, they throw in a lot of stuff, as you know, but, but wouldn't a peer-reviewed finding be a marker that this was, you know, accepted or at least passed a, a pretty high bar? Yes, the the only um, the only qualification would be that the lawyer would have to explain what what does peer review mean, right? You guess can't just say peer reviewed. You'd have to say you know it's sent maybe maybe um, the author's name is concealed something like that, and it's sent to uh, people with recognized reputation in the field. 
you, if you explain that, pardon? I'm smiling because, you know, if at, Jeff, you might have had this experience when, when you're in a law school and you have to go before a university committee to defend someone's tenure case. And, you know, you say, oh, they published in the Harvard Law Review. Um, and they ask, is that peer reviewed? And you say, no. <laughs> Everyone in the room bursts out laughing. Right? <laughs> because it's exactly the opposite of the rest of the academic world. Yes. We, we don't understand non-peer reviewed stuff, right? But the judges, you have to explain what peer reviewed Oh, yeah, is. you have to explain, <laughs> yeah. Can yeah. I just say one thing about that article, which is that it was, it turned out, although no one knows that it was peer reviewed, not oh, in the acceptance stage when we submitted it. Oh, that's fine. It, it, Jim Griner checked every one of the statistics, and so as compared to most of the <laughs> peer reviewed stuff in the uh, field, there was, hmm. there was a hmm. lot. But there's, Easterbrook is, understandably wouldn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Hey, what are judges supposed to do when, when the empirical evidence is cited in a brief that is, seems relevant to the issue in dispute, but they don't really know how to evaluate you know, the reliability of the, of the data, um, or even necessarily to understand the data. But it seems like it's appropriate to be there, and it seems like it's in theory should be helpful. What are they supposed to do in that situation? Well, if it's really critical, they could, you know, ask for supplemental briefing, explaining the work and and what verification it's received. But we we can't do that. I can't um, I can't think of a case where where th where that's happened. I think because um, I can't think of a case where where a lawyer in a brief said in effect our case turns on th this study the lawyers basically don't invoke empirical work they may but not to make it so critical right, yeah yeah that's what i i think is very uh is is very is very rare i th they may be thinking that um if the that it, w that it would have been presented at the district court level, and the district court judge accepted it or didn't accept it, and if he accepted it, they'll treat that as gospel, as we have the clearly erroneous standard. If he rejected it, uh, they might try to resuscitate it and say it was, you know, reputable, was peer reviewed, and so on. Uh, but actually, they they don't they don't make they they tend not to place great emphasis on uh, uh, empir empirical work of, of any sort, more on expert witness testimony. On that discouraging note, <laughs> <laughs> so we should uh, thank Judge Bozer. Okay, well, thank you very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.